Hey, Revelation 3, <clears throat> while you're turning there, or while you're there maybe, a couple quick things. Uh, we as a church are going to invest into something called Alpha. Alpha is basically an evangelism course. I don't even know what to call this. This is a way for us to engage um, with a community of people who don't yet believe in Jesus. Um, we believe this is a great way for us to engage with people at your workplace, your neighbors, your friends, your family. We would say, please invite them to Alpha. This is going to be something we're probably going to invest in for years to come. I think everyone will have some sort of role in Alpha, whether that's inviting people from your work, your life, or just being a part of this in some way. If you want to be a part of like a table leader, making the place like friendly, bringing food, uh, hosting the discussion, uh, we're, we're doing this Alpha leadership thing for a few weeks. So um, if you want to be a part of like Alpha leadership and be part of that in some capacity. We're going to have three trainings. We've already had one. There's two more left, so there's still time to be part of this, but it's going to happen this Saturday at 4 p.m. If you want the location, go to our website, theexchangechurch.cc slash alpha, and we would love for everyone to be part of this in some way. Uh, but know that this can be a, a big way that we just kind of engage with our community, to engage with South Florida, to kind of invite them into hearing the gospel of Jesus, maybe where they won't come to church, but they're willing to have a discussion about life and meaning and death and faith. And so we'd love for you guys to be part of this uh, with us. Cool? Sound good? Yes, evangelism, making disciples. This is where we want to do this, a, a big part of this. All right? Uh, next thing is this. This is for everyone as well. All right, so I don't think this applies to someone else. In two Fridays, we're having something called Team Night. All right, Team Night, we haven't done it in a long time because of COVID, but this is basically a night where we get all of those who serve, all of our volunteers, anyone who serves in any way. We kind of uh, talk through some big picture stuff. We worship. We break out into smaller groups and smaller teams. We eat some food. Uh, team Night's a lot of fun. So we're going to meet in two Fridays. I believe it's the 26th should be behind me, down there in the corner. The 26th, Friday the 26th at 7 p.m., we're going to meet the Double Tree Hotel on Hillsborough near the 95. If you know what I'm talking about, the 95 freeway, you get off right on Hillsborough. You're going to see a big Double Tree Hotel. Uh, we're renting out one of the rooms, and we're going to have a team night. So we would love for anyone, like even if you don't serve, come to team night. Uh, this is a great way for you to kind of meet the team, hear more about uh, just different ways that we want to serve and love our community, and we want to just refresh you guys, pour into you guys, invest in all those who serve. So that's going to be uh, in two Fridays, the 26th, all right? So that you don't even register, just come. Food, hanging out, discussion, worship, big picture stuff, small picture stuff. We're going to do all of that in two Fridays. Cool? Sound good? Can I see a little head nod? You guys are with me? All right. I love team nights. It'll be really fun. All right. That's it. Revelation chapter 3. Why don't you turn there? Let me give you some t context again. Uh, this is the sixth out of seven churches that we're studying today. Uh, I want to review a little bit because I've missed the last two weeks with you guys. This is where Jesus specifically speaks to the church. Revelation can be a daunting book. I understand that, that I've talked to many of you who said, like, I don't ever want to really read it or get into it. It kind of freaks me out a bit. I would say this, please read it. Please study it through. Uh, we know that this is the revelation of Jesus. It's not the book of Revelations. It's Revelation, and it's just the revelation of Jesus, meaning this is a book where Jesus makes himself known to us. We have the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, where we see Jesus. Revelation kind of gives us a different perspective of Jesus. We see Jesus who came to suffer and serve and die in the Gospels. Here we see him more as that ruling and reigning King of kings and Lord of lords. Like you see Jesus in his glory. You see John, who knew Jesus in his youth, sees Jesus on the island of Patmos, and he has this revelation of Jesus, and he falls over as a dead man, it says. And John experiences Jesus, who already knew Jesus, but he experiences Jesus in this greater and intimate way. 
And it's basically like, it's a book that I, I would say it's like a worshipful book. It's a book that, yes, deals with end times, but I would say it's primarily a book about Jesus. It's the revelation of Jesus. And so Jesus, and this is why I find really unique, it starts off, this, this book starts off with Jesus speaking to the church. Jesus loves the church. Jesus created the church. Jesus died for the church. Jesus said, on this rock, I will build my church. It's Jesus' church. That rock is the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so Jesus has an intimate love and desire for the church. Like, I, I do want to ask you, um, I don't know what, what interests you, but what has been something you've been following recently? Like maybe, I don't know, just maybe you follow a sports team, you follow Bitcoin, you follow like something. Like what's something you've been following and intrigued by? If you go my Google search history, uh, right when I got back, I, I Googled, I'm like, when is In-N-Out Burger coming to South Florida? Um, that was my question because I miss it. It's, if you don't know what it is, just, you'll find out one day, hopefully. Um, but like, what interests you? What are you, what are you like, curious about? What do you want to know more about? Uh, what do you focus on? What kind of takes up your attention or your thinking? Here's what I find so interesting. Jesus deeply loves the church. Jesus is constantly aware of what's happening within the church. It's an incredibly humbling section of Scripture for us to study because we're saying, Jesus, you know the church, you love the church, you care about the church, you will correct the church, you'll rebuke the church, you'll commend and praise the church, you care about your church. I want you to know the exchange, that this local gathering of believers, Jesus loves you, cares for you, knows what's going on within us collectively and with us individually. Jesus would see what's happening within the church, big picture, but also say, hey, I see there's a remnant of you that are still following me. Jesus like, knows intimately what's happening within the church. This is one of the most humbling things for us when we study this, because we got to see that um, Jesus loves the, the gathering of believers. Jesus loves the idea of the book of Titus or First and Second Timothy, order in the church, he created deacons and elders and leadership and structure, that that is not a bad thing, that is not a, an American thing, that is not a Western thing, that this is a, a structure thing that Jesus has given from the very beginning, saying, I love the church, I care for the church, I want to raise up leaders and shepherds and people to serve and come alongside the church. Here's why I'm, I'm sharing all of this. Um, I want us to develop a, a love for the church like Jesus loves the church. You are the church. You are the body of Christ. You are the bride of Christ, that God has pay, paid a huge price for you that God loves you intimately and deeply. And we're going to be looking at the sixth church in Revelation. This is the church of Philadelphia. Uh, I know when I say that, I think of like Pennsylvania, but this is the church of Philadelphia in Turkey, in Asia Minor. And this was the church, it was known as the church that Jesus loved. Like that's its reputation. Now, I love that we're talking about the church that Jesus loved on Valentine's Day. I wish I was like clever and creative enough to be like, we're going to map this out perfectly. It's going to be Valentine's Day. No, but God is just so good that way. Uh, but this is the church that loved Jesus, and this is the church that Jesus loved. This is the only church with one other, one of two churches, that Jesus has nothing negative to say about. This is an incredibly encouraging message from Jesus. You know, some of the other churches that we've looked at, it's been difficult. Like, it was, it's tough to teach through. I mean, the first church was Ephesus. Just let's do a little review. Ephesus, they had really good doctrine, but they left their first love. There's a challenge to believers of like, hey, maybe you believe the right things, but have you left your first love? Is Jesus your first love? Then the second church was Smyrna. Smyrna was the persecuted church. This was the other really good and healthy church. Jesus had nothing negative to say about Smyrna. They were persecuted. They, were, they endured for Jesus. The third church was Pergamum. Pergamum was the compromising church. They started compromising in their beliefs, and it led into their lifestyle. Then we looked at Thyatira. It's a church I, I was studying for all week, and I really wish I could have taught it, but Thyatira was the corrupt church. It's where it started compromising to an extent where it led to their corruption, 
It led to just immoral lifestyles on, on so many levels. Then last week, you looked at the, the church of Sardis. This was the dead church. This was the church that seemed to be alive, like there's activity happening, but it's really dead. Jesus goes, I know you're, you think you're alive, but, but you're dead. It's an incredibly humbling church to look at, the church that what, thought it was alive but was dead. And now Jesus here, the sixth church, the church of Philadelphia, and it's the church that he loved. It's the church that Jesus loved and the church that, that loved him. Now, obviously, Jesus loves the church, but specifically where he says, and I have loved you. So we look at a church. This is a healthy church. Listen, if there is one church in the book of Revelation that we go, what can the exchange, what do we want the ch- exchange to be like? It would be this church. Like, I, again, when it comes to Smyrna being persecuted, if we have to be that church, let's be that church. But if we could be a church in Revelation, it's the church of Philadelphia. It's the church that had a little bit of strength, but loved big time. And so I want to look at this. I want to study this with you guys. And, and here's kind of why we were doing this. I'm praying that this is like a mirror that as we study these seven churches in Revelation, we'd say, uh, Jesus, what do you want to say to our church? Where do you want to correct us, come alongside us? Where do you want to encourage us? Where do you want to challenge us, rebuke us, call us out? What is it you want to do? And I just hope that we would learn from this. I hope that we'd become like the church that Jesus loved, the church that endured well here. And so we're going to look at this more, but um, just, I just want to encourage you guys, even as we're like moving on from this, next week will be the Church of Laodicea, the lukewarm church. As we're kind of walking through this, I'm just praying like, Holy Spirit, do what it is you want to do within our church community. Like purify us. Make us more like Jesus. Make us be a church that you love. After this is over, just a heads up, we are going to do a five-week series called A Jesus Church and look at what does it mean to be a church that uh, is designed and built and does what Jesus wants us to do as a church. And so I'm looking forward to walking through, like, we've looked at some negative churches. We're going to look at, like, what does it mean to be the church next? And just how do we, how do we li- actively live as the body of Christ? How do we love and serve and engage our community? How do we use our time, our energy, our money, our resources well for the kingdom of God? And we want to do this well. Amen? So let's pray, or let's read this, and then we'll pray and just invite the Lord to speak to us. So Revelation chapter 3, we're going to be in verse 7, the church of Philadelphia. Here's what Jesus says to this church. Revelation 3 verse 7, it says, Jesus says, And to the angel or the messenger of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it, for you have a little strength and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Verse 9, indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but they lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you because you have kept my command to persevere. I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who will dwell, to test those who dwell on the earth. Verse 11, Jesus says, Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God and the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Let's pray that we have an ear to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches and to our church today. Father, we just thank you. 
Um, we thank you for your word. It's incredibly humbling. Jesus, you love the church. You know the church. You encourage the church. Jesus, I ask that you would accomplish your will in our lives today, that we'd be the church that loves you, that receives the love you have for us, that, God, you would just make us more like your son, Jesus, that even these promises, God, that we would just take to heart, that we would overcome, that our victory is you, Jesus. It's what you've done. It's what you have finished on our behalf. And so, Lord, just speak now. Move. And I just ask, God, that um, we would be more like you in this process. In your precious name, Jesus. Amen. I want you to think about um, your first boss or a boss that you had, maybe that was just a terrible boss. Like, I want you to think about the boss that kind of made your life miserable for just a second. You're like, I don't want to do that, but just think about it for just a second, him or her. Um, I think about my first job I ever had. I was 16 years old. I, I worked at a restaurant in Southern California called Ruby's, Ruby's Diner. Not like Ruby's Tuesday, like Ruby's Diner. Like, we, we wore, I don't know, like all white, basically, buttoned up to the very top, uh, bow tie, a little hat. It was like a 50s diner. It was like a 40s diner thing. I don't know. It was just, it was there. It was like, a, if you go to Southern California, like on every pier, there's like a Ruby's Diner, basically. And, and there's couple other ones. So I worked at this place called Ruby's Diner. My first job, my boss's name, my manager's name was Clive Squirrel. That was his name, Clive Squirrel. Uh, he made my life miserable. Uh, Clive, I remember one of the managers called one day from different Rubies, and he's like, on the front of the story, it would say the manager's name. I don't know why, like on the window, it'd say, manager, Clive Squirrel. And so my, the, another manager called and said, hey, can you scrape the C off of uh, his name on the, on the window? And I'm like, what? I'm like, oh my gosh, live squirrel. I just thought it was so great. Um, and they messed with him. But man, he, he was tough. We had to clean high chairs, like the kids' high chairs. And there's like, you know, just kids stuff things in there. There's like macaroni and cheese everywhere. It's just gross. And I remember he made me clean the same high chairs like seven to eight times. Like to the point where you're like, you're gonna lo- like you, there's nothing wrong with it. And he just was one of those guys that was never encouraging, just always on top of you, just kind of like mean. You're like, you just never wanted him to be on duty when you had your shift. It was just, he was miserable, right? There's no encouragement whatsoever. When you have that kind of overseer, it can be miserable. There's something about someone who encourages you and speaks life into you. Uh, is the University of Pennsylvania. Her name is Margaret Greenberg. She did a study on basically encouragement in the workplace, and they found out that managers and overseers who are encouraging by nature, they found a 31% increase in their productivity from managers who are just encouraging. Managers who spoke life, managers who affirmed you. I mean, they did like a survey of a lot of different types of businesses and corporations, and they said, you know what, on average, 31% increase of productivity when the manager's just encouraging. Uh, The British Journal of Sports Medicine did a study, I thought this was interesting, on like powerlifting, and they said when when you're encouraging someone who's like doing heavy weight, I don't know if you ever have, you can tell I, I do it all the time, Totally kidding. Uh, but when people are doing like powerlifting, they say, but someone who's just encouraging you off to the side, they can increase their strength by about 5%. So if you have someone like, let's go, you can do it. You can powerlift more about by 5%. They say if they're like yelling and screaming their encouragement, they can powerlift more by 8%. The British Journal of Sports Medicine. 8% more from those who are screaming at you, telling you, let's go, like doing a good job, but kind of hyping you up a bit. You actually had 8% more. Here's what I'm getting at. There's something about an encouraging word There's something about someone speaking life into you. There's something about people just seeing the good in you and affirming that. You know, uh, a guy named George Adams says, encouragement is oxygen for the soul. Martin Luther said something maybe you've heard. He says, uh, to speak encouragement is to speak courage into someone's life. To speak encouragement, the idea of encourage, you're you're putting courage in them. You're encouraging them, you're putting courage in them, into someone's life. Here's what I'm getting at. Jesus encourages this church. Jesus commends this church. Jesus praises this church. Remember, he, he does this essentially for every church, except for maybe one. 
But this is a church where he has nothing negative to say about. There's nothing negative here. There's no, there's no phrase where he says, nevertheless, I have this against you, like he does for other churches. He's just simply looking at this church in Philadelphia, and he's loving on it. He's speaking life into it. And, I, and I, guys, I want to say this because we've gone through some pretty heavy topics. I want to say it's okay, like, to, like, this morning, let's just slow down and take a deep breath and let Jesus just speak life over you. It's okay to let Jesus encourage you. Like, I really, I think I struggle with this. Like, I, I always, like, struggle maybe with praise or affirmation. Or like, no, no, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's pride and ego. There's some of those things behind that. But I want to say, like, I want to, like, take in this word from Jesus. I'm just like, let Jesus speak life and love over you. What does he say about you? What does he say about this church? Jesus is encouraging and speaking into this church. And I want to say this. Let's not fight this. We've had a lot of heavy, you know, Sardis, Thyatira, Pergamum. I mean, pretty heavy sections of Scripture. But now it's like, let's just take this in where Jesus is just speaking into this church. He, he kind of makes them aware of some things going on. But he just loves on them. And I want to say, let's just receive this. Can we do that this morning? So let's, let's walk through, like we do for every church, there's a basic flow to this. This one's a little bit different. So let's kind of walk through this. Here's the first thing. The thing we're going to look at every week is this, destination, who is it written to? So let's look down again. It's nothing crazy, but it's Revelation 3, verse 7. He says, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write. Let's talk about Philadelphia. We'll put a picture of the map up just so you can see. Not the most helpful thing, but remember, these are the seven churches in uh, Asia Minor, or modern-day Turkey. So you can kind of see this here. It's obviously not perfect. It's about 35 miles away from uh, Sardis, and this was a church that was basically known as like the gateway to the east. Um, let's talk about this. Uh, this was basically during the kind of the Greek empire where they, they established Philadelphia as a way to get the Hellenistic or the Greek culture out to the east. So it's a Greek-speaking people, Greek-speaking city. They wanted their culture. They wanted a lot of that to be in Philadelphia so it could go to the east. This was basically an evangelistic city. This was a city that was used to kind of get the Greek gospel out to the eastern world. And I think it's a prime location for the gospel to get out to the known world. Uh, church history tells us that Philadelphia was used as the sending city to actually plant churches in India. That many churches were planted in India from missionaries who were sent out of the city of Philadelphia. So this was a prime location. This was a healthy church that sent out missionaries. I do love that. I, I think about where we live and just kind of praying through this because we live in South Florida. I mean, we live in a unique part of the globe where this is a great sending location. This is a place where you can send people to the Caribbean, where you send people to South America, Central America. You know, a lot of people I know, when they go on mission trips from California, they fly first into Fort Lauderdale, Miami, before they send them out. Like, we live in a great hub. I think God has put us in a place, and for on purpose, say, how can we send people out? How can we be mission-minded? How can we look out to the world and say, Jesus, you placed us here for a reason? We're praying, like right now we're praying, like God, I don't know what you're doing, but five years, 10 years, whatever it is you're doing from now, we want to be part of church plants to a Brazil or a Colombia or the Caribbean or wherever. Jesus, we're open to it. We're in a prime spot. I think the Bible is just very, I love how God works. I love that this church was planted here. The, the intent and origin of this church was to get the Greek culture out, but God used this church to get the gospel out. I just love how God works. I love how God redeems this. I love how God used this city. Uh, Philadelphia, just let's talk about the area a little bit. It was actually called a Little Athens. It was called a Little Athens due to some of its temples, some of its design, its structure. Uh, they had temples to Dionysus, the god of wine. I mean, they're just known as a Little Athens, like a little party place in some ways. Uh, they had a really fertile soil because there's a volcano not too far nearby, so they grew great grapes and raisins and wine, things like that. 
uh, there was an earthquake that like devastated the city at one point, even Sardis, we talked about that before, but an earthquake that kind of leveled the city. And so there was some vulnerability there. I don't know if, again, if you've ever been in an earthquake. Earthquakes are terrifying. I've been in quite a few. Uh, I, I'd rather be in an earthquake than in a hurricane. That's just me. But they're terrifying. I mean, you're like in a room and everything shakes, and you're like, I guess we're done. Let's continue. Uh, just different, just weird, but there's like vulnerability when that happens. And you're going to see that Jesus speaks into this vulnerability. He talks about them being a pillar, this immovable feature. I think Jesus knows the culture. We talked about this so well that he kind of speaks into it. And so you want to understand this destination, kind of what they were dealing with. Yes, there was some wealth there, but this was kind of like a, this was really essentially the gateway to the east. And God uses this city in a mighty way to get the gospel out. So that's the destination. All right. This was a city that was like a church that was a missionary city. They sent out disciples. They sent out missionaries. It was, it was incredible. So let's keep going. That's the destination. Now, there's always a description of Jesus in every letter or in every church that Jesus speaks to, he describes himself. Now, I love how Jesus describes himself to Philadelphia. Notice this. It's verse 7. Let's read it again. He says, these things says who? Jesus has described himself. He who is holy. He who is true. He who has the key of David. He who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. This is an interesting description of Jesus. Now, a lot of times there's a description of Jesus to almost like, you know, cause fear in some ways. The way Jesus described himself to Sardis, it was something like a holy fear. This is interesting how he describes himself. He goes, I'm holy, I'm true, I have the key of David, I'm going to open a door that no one can shut. I'm going to shut a door that no one can open. So let's talk about this. There's kind of three descriptions. Let's look at holy, true, the key of David. All right, let's do this. He is holy. The number one attribute of God repeated in the Bible is the holiness of God. If you want to know like, the main attribute of God that's communicated over and over and over again, it's that God is holy. I mean, this is how God revealed himself to Moses. Hey, Moses, I'm holy. Take off your sandals from where you're standing. This is holy ground. You want to see me? You can't handle my holiness or my glory. It's too much for you. In the book of Leviticus, you'll see this phrase over and over again, like, be holy for I am holy, or holiness unto the Lord. There's just this constant idea of holiness. Holiness communicates this idea to be set apart from something. Listen, to be set apart from something and to be set apart to something. Holiness communicates the idea that I'm set apart from the world. I'm holy. I'm set apart from, but then I'm set apart to God. And God over and over again communicates this idea. He says, be holy for I am holy. This is how God reveals himself to us. It's in a, the book of uh, Hosea, chapter 11. God says, for I am God and not man, the holy one among you. This is how God wants to reveal himself to us. I'm holy. I'm set apart. I'm among you, but I'm set apart among you. Uh, then Peter takes this idea. He takes this Leviticus verse. He repeats it. Listen to this in 1 Peter 1, verse 15. This is for us today. So it's not just Old Testament. This is New Testament. Here's what Peter says. As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, be holy for I am holy. This is not just, well, this is the Old Testament, be holy for God is holy. Peter said, no, 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 God is holy. And so you be holy as he is holy. You be holy in your conduct. I mean, it couldn't be more clear. You be set apart in your lifestyle and your conduct. Listen, the greatest way to reach the world for Jesus is being like Jesus. The greatest way to reach the world is not by being like the world. How can we reach the world if we're being just like them? There has to be something unique. There has to be something different. There has to be something you go, what is different about this group? What is different about this individual? Listen, the holiness of God will stand out. When you live a life that's different from culture, 
Trust me, it's going to stand out. Now, you're not to boast in your self-righteousness. You're not to pretend you're holier than thou. This can be abused. This can be misused. But there's something beautiful when someone lives a, a life wholly set apart. Think about the way Jesus lived. Obviously, holy, set apart, and yet he was constantly among non-believers. You can be holy and set apart and be around non-believers. Absolutely. I would encourage you to know where you're at in your walk with the Lord. You know, maybe, maybe you're not in a place where you should put yourself in an environment where it just might just corrupt your lifestyle. Jesus obviously is holy, set apart, but could be around non-believers. It was beautiful. This is how we're to live, to be holy as he is holy. Church, like, I would love for us to just be known for this. Not this, like, fake sense of pharisaical, self-righteous holiness. Not this, we're pretending to be holier than thou, and we're saying this Christianly, you know, just, it's weird. I don't know. I don't know if I, when I was out in California and met some people I've never met before, but they're like, oh, you're a pastor. And I just had some people talk really bizarrely to me. Like, oh, blessed God, he's so good. I'm going to serve at this pastor's doorstep when, I don't know, they're saying weird things. I'm like, what are you saying? Like, that no one talks like that. You know, like, and I love, but I'm just saying, like, let's not pretend or put on this fake facade of holiness. Like, let's just truly just live a life that says, Jesus, you are holy. You are set apart and yet you're around non-believers and engage them well, love them well, serve them well, help me be holy, set apart from the world, but also to you. Listen, Jesus describes, listen, Jesus described himself, hey, I'm speaking to you, I'm the holy one. The holy one's talking. This should bring some sense of holy fear and reverence towards God in our lives. Guys, God is holy. I mean, when you think about just the angels in heaven saying, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come, there is a sense of God, you are holy and I am not God, you are completely set apart. There is no one like you. And this creates a sense of just reverence and worship and fear and honor. And honestly, I think we as the church, maybe this is an attribute of God we, we could talk about more. I love God's goodness. I love God's grace. I love God's mercy. Let's talk about that. But let, let's also talk about God's holiness and what that does for us. Because as you behold a holy God, the Bible talks about this idea, like you become what you behold. So if you're beholding a holy God, there should be holiness in lifestyle. You become what you behold. And we see this. God's like, hey, let me remind you who I am. I'm holy. And then we'll just keep going. Look at how he describes himself. He says, he who is true. I mean, we won't get into this too much, but over and over again, Jesus talks about this, that I am truth, that Jesus himself is truth. Truth is not necessarily a concept, but it's a person. I love this about Jesus. Guys, Jesus holds back nothing. You know, like, Jesus doesn't hold back any punches. Like, Jesus can just speak fire, right? And you're like, oh my gosh, I feel that. Like, you read the scriptures, and you're like, could the Bible really mean that? Maybe I'm going to interpret it somewhere else. You're like, no, no. When you read it, you go, oh, Jesus, I got to take this to heart. You're true. This truth, like, sometimes the word of God just does that. It just pierces you, and you go, oh, I just got to the heart of the matter. Jesus is true. And then he says, and I have the keys of David. I'm going to open up doors that no one can shut. I'm going to shut doors that no one can open. Now, what is this in reference to? Remember, Revelation is just filled. It's filled with this Old Testament understanding. It's filled with Old Testament verses and scriptures and references. And Jesus is referring to this idea in Isaiah 22, 22. Write down Isaiah 22, 22. Here's this verse, and we'll just read it really quick. In Isaiah 22, 22, it says, I will place the key of the house of David on his shoulder. What he opens, no one can close, and what he closes, no one can open. Almost verbatim what Jesus says here. The story goes, uh, David had kind of like a gatekeeper, a steward in his house, somebody who oversaw like his treasury. His name was Sheb Shebna, or Shebna, however you want to say it, but he wasn't a good steward. He stole, he abused, so God's like, I'm going to raise up Eliakim. Eliakim's going to have the key to the house of David. 
He's going to have access and authority. Here's what this key of the house of David, it's a messianic uh, principle or understanding that it's referring to Jesus. Jesus will have the key of David. He'll come from David. He's the son of David. There's that, yes. But here's what a key communicates. A key communicates authority and access. If you've ever been somewhere like kind of cool and you're like, I don't, like, how do we get around? And someone has like a, a key. And you're like, hey, I'll just I'll let you in. You're like, oh my gosh, they have a key. Like there's something about like a key, right? You have access, you have authority. If I give you keys to my house or keys to my car, or you give me keys, like there's something about a key that communicates access and authority, power. You can get me in. Jesus goes, I, I have the keys. Remember he talked about, I have the keys of the gates of hell and of heaven. He has the keys of David. I have access to this Davidic line, to this kingly line. There's a lot of debate about, again, what this could, could refer to. I think it's you have keys and access to Jesus himself. You have key and access to God himself. I mean, we have access to the most powerful person in the universe. It's unbelievable. Like, it truly is. If I was like, yo, I have like the keys to the White House, you'd be like, oh my gosh, that's incredible. Right? It's like, I have, geez, I have key or access to Jesus who has the keys to everything. It's just crazy what this idea of keys communicate, this access it communicates. There's like this invitational idea that it communicates that you have access. Jesus in John chapter 10 verse 9 said, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm access. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the access point to everything you've ever needed. I'm the access point to heaven, to eternal life, to eternity now. Like, that's me. You have access to Jesus, who has the keys of the gates of hell. He's the keys of the gates of heaven, the keys of David. This idea of just authority that Jesus has. And he said, I'll open up a door no one can shut. I'll shut a door no one can open. And we'll talk about that in a second, just because he says it again. But I just want you to stay with me on this idea that, man, he goes, no, I'm holy, I'm true. I have the keys to the house of David. He's just describing himself in a way that's not to intimidate them, but just to go, and you've got it. You've understood this. You've approached me this way. You've done good in this. Hello, there we go. So he approaches it in this way. And then he goes on. Let's keep reading. It's now the praise he has for this church. It's verse 8. Listen to what Jesus says now in verse 8. Here's the commendation or praise, right? Verse 8, Jesus says, I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. Again, he repeats that. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. All right, so here's Jesus saying, good job, guys. He goes, I've set before you an open door. So let's talk about this really quick. When the Bible talks about this idea of an open door, it's usually talking about an opportunity for evangelism or an opportunity into God's presence. I've set before you an open door. Paul uses this phrase a lot. Um, We'll just show you some of the verses, and if you want, you can write it down. I find this very interesting. Paul says, a wide door for effective work has been opened to me. In 2 Corinthians 2, Paul says, a door was opened for me in the Lord. In Acts 14, it says, uh, It says, had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. The point is, so often God says, there's a door that's open. Take it. I've opened a door for you to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. I've opened a door for you. Paul even said in another place, there's a door open and there's many adversaries behind it. The point is, when God opens a door, you must walk through it. I've kind of learned that in life, that when God opens a door, uh, you've got to walk through it. When God closes a door... The Bible does say ask, seek, knock. I think it's like, hey, God, can you open this door? It's okay to ask and seek and knock. But sometimes when God closes the door, we don't need to break it down. You know, I would say there's something about just saying, God, like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to seek you. I'm going to trust you. You have key. You're going to open a door no one can shut. You're going to shut a door no one can open. I think there's a, there's a real, I guess, interpretation for this, for our understanding is, God, um, help me to take the open doors you've given me. 
help me to accept the doors you've closed for me. I think there's an understanding of just saying, come to Jesus, that Jesus is this open door. Listen, the door won't always be open to come to Jesus. The Bible in 2 Corinthians 6 says, today's the day of salvation. You know, there's different parables that Jesus gave that those who didn't come into the party, those who didn't come into the access, and they're saying, let us in. And he's like, I don't know you. The point is when the door is open, walk through it. If you ever sense that Jesus, and maybe you're kind of been on the fence with this whole Jesus thing, and you sense that Jesus has been talking to you, and Jesus has been speaking to you, and should I give my life fully to Jesus? Should I be all in? I would say, be all, be all in. Walk through that door. Like, come in. I would say, if you've been praying through something, and an open door doesn't always mean necessarily that maybe that's the Lord. Maybe you could just look at that as like happenstance. You should pray and seek discernment. Absolutely. But I'd say so often you got to take that open door and say, Lord, like, is this from you? If it is, I'm going to walk through it. I'm not going to waste my time in this. You know, Jesus does say this. Come to me, all those who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There's just this constant invitation to Jesus to come to him, to access him, to, to like take advantage of who he is and what he's done, to enjoy him. There's some, this idea that we need to take this in. Uh, Revelation 22, listen to what Jesus says. It says, The Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I love this invitation just from God constantly. He's saying, Come. You're thirsty? Come. You want eternal life? Come. God's like constantly inviting us into this deep relationship with Him. He's constantly inviting us, saying, The door's open. What are you waiting for? He's going to say that next week. He's going to say, I sent the door and knock. The door's closed. Open the door for me. And there's this idea of just these open doors, these closed doors. Then he's saying, listen, I've set before you, Church of Philadelphia, I've set before you a door that no one can close. Guys, I believe God's given us opportunities to love and serve South Florida. And he's opened a door. Let's walk through that. That is the idea. God has opened a door for us to love our neighbors, to get the gospel out, to be a part of this great commission. Let's walk through it. Let's not just say, oh, the door's open. Someone else is going to walk through it. That, isn't that the, the pastor's job? Like, no, like, we got to walk through this open door. We got to kind of go into our community and say, God, you've, you give us opportunities that no other church has. You give other churches opportunities that we don't have. They need to be obedient. We need to be obedient. We want to walk through these open doors. Are you guys sticking with me? Yes. So he's saying, hey, I've said before you an open door. And then he says this phrase, for you have a little strength. Now, I find that interesting. I don't think Jesus is like mocking them, like, oh, you have a little bit of strength. It's so cute. Like, I think there's something about this. It's like, wow, you have a little strength. And look what you've done with your little. You know, there is something about this. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul says, I will boast in my weakness, for when I am weak, then I am strong. There is something about a little strength that God can do a lot with. You know, there's something about when you go, I just have a little bit of strength. Like, I'm tired. But God, it's when I'm weak, then you're strong. Show up. Maybe you feel this way. I feel this way. Leaving 2020, going to 2021. Like, God, I have a little bit of strength. And I feel like the Lord's like, perfect. You can't boast in your strength. You can't boast in what you've done. You can only boast in who I am and what I'm going to do. Like, we need to boast in our weakness. Amen? For when I am weak, then I am strong. Because you have a little strength. I just love that Jesus notices this and sees this. And they have a huge impact they have a huge impact for the gospel. They had a little strength, but this church loved well and did big things for God. You know, Hudson Taylor, who was a missionary to China, uh, he became a doctor so he could go to China and use his medical, like, gifting to love and serve China. God used this guy to bring thousands of people. I mean, the work that we're seeing right now in China, I would say a lot of it, you could say stems from what Hudson Taylor did a couple hundred years ago. But here's what uh, Hudson Taylor said. He says, I am not a man of great faith. I'm a man of a great God. I love that. I'm not a man of great faith. I'm just a man of a great God. What are you boasting? You boast in, in his great strength. It's when I'm weak, then I'm strong. 
This is what he's boasting in. He, and Jesus goes, I see that you have a little bit of strength. And let's keep reading, because notice what he says next. He says, you have kept my word, right, verse 8. You've kept my word and not denied my name. Here's what I want to say is so powerful. Twice Jesus says, you've kept my word, or you kept my word to persevere. He's saying, you've kept my word. Why is this so important, keeping Jesus' word? Jesus said this himself. Write this verse down. I think this is one of the most profound verses in the Bible. It's John 14, 21. Jesus said it this way. Uh, he who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. How do you know you love Jesus? According to Jesus, you love him if you keep his word. You say, I love Jesus. I love Jesus with my whole heart. Do you keep his word? Well, no, you don't love Jesus, according to Jesus. Do we get how profound this is? Jesus goes, you've kept my word. You can my word to persevere. How do you know? How do you know I love Jesus? How do you know someone loves Jesus? They keep his commandments. He goes, hey, he who keeps my commandments, it's him who loves me. Want to know who loves me? Those who keep my word. There's something about keeping the word. This church loved Jesus. How do we know they kept his word? This is what Jesus would say. This is how I know you love me. You've kept my word. Church, I would say keep his word. Keep his commandments. Let's live it out. We can't just believe the right things about Jesus. That, that belief should lead to lifestyle. It should lead to action. It should lead to change. We can't just pass the test of like, Jesus is fully God. Jesus died for our sins. Jesus rose again. We can't just like check yes to those things. Like, that's good, right? It's like you got to keep his word. It's the one who keeps his word who loves him. Is this registering? Is this sinking in? Church, how do we know we love Jesus? Keep his word. He goes, you kept my word. And he goes, you've not denied my name. Now, I find this interesting because this church, there's actually, so if you can, like, study the, the history of this church, there's a church found up to about the 12th century or 13th century in Philadelphia, a Byzantine model-style church. So the idea is that this church has been around for over a thousand years after this point. Like, it's children, it's great-grandchildren, it's great-great-grandchildren, they all love Jesus. Like, I love this about this church. There is, there, it's believed that Philadelphia, not believed, but history tells us that this city was destroyed for the most part in 1342 when Muslims came in and basically tore down the city, tore down the churches, and you could say at this point the church kind of came to an end, but this is like the longest-lasting church, it seems, in uh, the seven churches, that this church was just one that kind of endured for a long period of time. They loved him. They loved Jesus. They've, they did not deny his name. They kept going. Their kids, their great-grandkids loved him. Just what a beautiful desire for us. It's like, God, I want my kids to know you. I want my grandkids to know you. I want my great-grandkids to know you. This was Philadelphia. And he goes, you've not denied my name. So we'll keep going. Here's what he says next, verse 10. Or verse 9, he says, Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Okay, what's happening here? We've talked about these Jews going around who are just basically bringing persecution on Christians. Jesus even referenced this in, in just different ways. He goes, just because you're sons of Abraham doesn't mean you're God's children. God can raise up children from these rocks. And, and Jesus even spoke into this idea that you're, those who are God's Children are those who love and believe in Jesus. So the church at this point in time was experiencing a lot of persecution from these Jews going around and really kind of offering them up to be just persecuted and tortured. Here's what I want to get at with this. What does it mean to come make and worship before them? You know, in the book of Isaiah, there was this idea that Gentiles would come and go to the Jews and say, we want to worship with you. We want to worship before you. We want, to be your, we want your God to be our God. And Jesus is almost taking all these references from Isaiah and saying, no, no, look at the Jews will go to the Gentiles and worship before them. Like this idea that we would go to the Jews saying, we want to know your God. Well, the idea is that Gentiles know the God of the Jews, and it's through the person of Jesus. And now it's like flipping that idea back on their heads saying, hey, you're gonna, Jews are going to go to you and say, we want to worship before you. Now, what am I getting at? Verse 9 really communicates that there's always going to be a group of people that hate Christians. 
that they, they were trying to persecute and martyr and destroy the many believers' lives in this day. I don't want to get too into this, but listen, there's always going to be a group of people that just don't like Christians. We've got to understand that. That we're not the most likable group of people. Once you make a truth claim, once you say Jesus is Lord, you're not going to be like, oh, I love those people. They claim that they have the only faith that's the way to God. Like, there's going to be, in a sense, just a group of people that say, I don't like that. And that's not to, like, freak us out. It's, not, it's one of those things we go, okay, that's where we're at. But you know what? I think there's going to be this idea, this understanding that when people see us, they want to go, I want to know what you know. I want to believe what you believe. I see the difference. I see the love. I see the service. I want to come and worship before you. Meaning, I want to come be part of what you're a part of. And that's essentially what seems to be happening here. And we'll keep going and look at verse 9 because Jesus says this, they'll know that I have loved you. And this is what I wanted to stop and focus on. That Jesus loves the church. Listen, Jesus loved this church. Jesus says that I have loved you in this present ongoing tense of I, I, love, I still love you. I love you. I think it's hard for us to hear that. I, you know, it's funny, like, I try to think about different passages where it says, where does Jesus love the church? You know, this is one of the select passages in the Bible where Jesus is clearly saying, I have loved you. I've loved the church. Because I so believe with all my heart, Jesus loves the church. I believe that Jesus loves this church. I believe that Jesus loves the gathering of believers. That as the husband is called to love the wife, so Christ loves the church. And I believe that we should look around and say, Jesus loves this church. Jesus loves this community. Jesus loves you. It is something that I think I can wrestle with, I can fight against. I don't know what kind of experiences you had or what you grew up with or what kind of parenting style you had. Sometimes it's hard to embrace just the love of God. Sometimes we want to fight it. Sometimes we think, no, God couldn't love me. Don't you know what I've done? It is mind-blowing, I think, as when I became a parent, there's this weird, like, I love you no matter what. Even if you're a little terror, I just love you and I would die for you. <laughs> like, no matter what, I love you. I, there's nothing you could do to earn my love. You're just mine. I love you. And I think we've got, we got to embrace that a little bit more. Jesus loves the church. Jesus loves you personally. He loves you collectively. I think it's one of those things that we should stop wrestling against and fighting against. I think we should embrace this. I mean, what, what happens when someone just kind of embraces the love of Jesus? What does it do to them? What does it produce in them? Guys, Jesus loves this church. He loves you guys. He loves the church, capital C. He loves the small, lowercase c's everywhere. He loves the church. I wouldn't say embrace that. Walk in that. Know that you are loved. You know, there's this idea that if you walk around like you have nothing in the bank, you're going to live a certain lifestyle that you go, I have nothing in the bank. I can't really do that much with it. But if you walk around, like the idea is like if you truly had a bank account that was just infinitely filled with money, like if you had a bank account that you're like, I, no matter what, I can get it. You would live and walk differently. Your bank account of love from God is completely full. You don't have to walk around like you're poor. You can walk around like your, your bank account is just filled with the love of God. Stop acting and walking around like we're poor. We have the love of God. What can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus? Nothing. Nothing. Neither life, nor death, nor angel, nor principality, nor power, nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. We need to rest in that love that God has for us, that God has for you. And he's saying, I want, you, I want them to know, I want the world to see that I've loved you. And then verse 10 is an interesting verse. Let's read that. Jesus goes on to say, Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. All right, let's talk about this. There's a lot of speculation. Like, what is he referring to? Um, there seems to be an hour of trial that will come upon the whole world. Now, there's two main thoughts primarily behind this. And let's just, just so you can kind of know what the schools of thought behind this. There seems to be a point of time where God's going to pour out his righteous judgment and wrath on the earth. 
earth. Uh, we would say that's maybe Revelation chapter 6 through 18, where you see the wrath of God being poured out on an unbelieving world. And he's saying, because you've kept my man command to persevere, you're not going to experience what he's about to talk through next in Revelation chapter 6 through 18. You're not going to experience that, that hour, hour of trial. Uh, you know, those would, there are those who would say, listen, there's a seven-year period in the Bible, according to the book of Daniel, that has not been fulfilled yet. Some call this, you know, the seven-year period is a tribulation, and this is just where God pours out his wrath on the earth. And he says, listen, I'm going to keep you from it. So there are those who will point this out and say, not that I will keep you through it, but I'll keep you from this hour of trial. And so there are those who say this is referring to the rapture of the church, where Jesus takes out the church before the wrath of God is poured out. I think that's a, a, a highly... Uh, likely understanding of this passage. There are others who will say, no, this hour of trial is just the wrath of God being poured on man, on man in general, and so you won't stand before God and be judged for your sins. He's going to keep you from that because it's poured out on Jesus. Here's the idea. Either way, I don't, want the, I don't want anyone, I know, I don't want anyone in this world to go through the hour of trial that will come upon the whole world. I don't want anyone to go through that. Whatever that is. Revelation 6 through 18, that's just, that, that's just end time wrath of God. Listen, I love this promise from Jesus, like, hey, because you've kept my command to persevere, you're not going to go through this hour of judgment. Hey, I don't want anyone to go through the hour of judgment with God. Jesus was judged for my sins. That was enough. You don't need to be judged for what Jesus already was judged for. I would say, let us be those who say, you know what, I'm going to persevere. That's what that, this means. I'm going to persevere. I, I too want to be kept from this hour of trial that will come upon the whole world. He goes, how do we do this? He goes, well, because you persevered, I'm going to keep you from this. I'm going to say, church, let's learn from this church. How do we persevere? How do we keep going? How do we say, Lord, I'm going to fight like this church fought. I'm going to persevere to the end. I'm going to boast in my weakness so that I, I can boast in your strength. This is what Philadelphia did. We'll keep moving, but then Jesus, right after this, now references his coming. And so we're going to look at Jesus' coming. And this is something, church, we have to just long for and better understand. Because verse 11, Jesus goes on to say, Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. All right, Jesus says, Behold, I am coming quickly. Now, if you're like me and you read this, you go, But Jesus, it's been 2,000 years. Like, how is this quick? And it's one of those things, you know, maybe you, we should wrestle with a little bit. We go, coming quickly, Jesus. It's been 2,000 years since this was written. What is going on? According to 2 Peter 3, time between us and God is just completely different. That for us, a day to God might be like a 1,000 years, a 1,000 years like a day. Time is just irrelevant in some ways. I still believe that we need to take on this mindset that Jesus says, I am coming quickly. I am coming quickly. Church, we should long for the coming of Jesus. Like, we should long for it. I want you to see that Jesus said this three more times in Revelation 22. Revelation 22, it's up here, verse 7. He said, I am coming quickly. Verse 12, I am coming quickly. Verse 20, surely I am coming quickly. What do you think that means? I think it means Jesus is coming quickly. Here's the, here's the idea. Uh, in Matthew 24, Jesus talks about what the world would be like during the sign of his return. And then he gives this parable and says, listen, there was a servant who said in his heart, my master delays his coming. Basically, the whole point of the parable, the whole point of that was, do not be the person who says, my master delays his coming. Listen, let me just say it like this. I believe in the imminent return of Jesus, meaning I believe that Jesus can truly come back for the bride of Christ at any point in time. Whether you want to say that's the rapture of the church or that's Jesus' second coming and coming again, I believe that Jesus can come at any point in time. There's no prophecy, nothing that needs to be, happen or be said or be done before Jesus can come back. Jesus says, don't be the person who says in your heart, my master delays his coming, or something else needs to happen before Jesus can come. There is this idea over and over again of the imminent return of Christ. 
that Jesus can come at any point, any time. And that is not a fearful thing. That is like a beautiful thing. When you're a husband standing at the altar waiting for your bride, it's not like, oh no, she's coming. It's like, oh, she's coming. That's what the feeling should be. That's what the mindset should be. If that was you on your wedding day, like, oh no, she's coming. I don't know what you're doing up there, right? The point is, we should have that kind of anticipation, expectation for Jesus' coming. It's not, oh no, he's coming. It's, he's coming. I remember the music started playing on our wedding day before Kimber walked out, and I don't know, all those emotions are like, oh my gosh, she's coming, right? And then you see her, and like, I bawled like a baby. Uh, and I don't know what your experience is. Every guy's different. But I was like, oh my gosh, she's coming. She's there. The idea is we should have this mindset of Jesus is coming. You know, Titus chapter 2, verse 13 says, we're looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Hear that again. Looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That the church should be looking for, longing for, the blessed hope of that glorious appearing of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus says, behold, I'm coming quickly. This is one of those things that we can just read it quickly and it become like a Bible study. I'm like, what does this mean? It doesn't really matter. Jesus is coming quickly. Does this create within our hearts this longing, expectation, excitement? Are we living in light of the return of Christ? Are we living for what matters? Are we living for eternity? Are we living for Jesus? Are we, are we reordering our lives in a way that is prioritizing the eternal things, the things that will last forever, that face-to-face moment with Jesus where you can hear his words, well done, my good and faithful servant. The point is, we should be living in that such a way for Jesus' return. We're looking for the blessed hope of Jesus' return. Amen? Jesus is coming quickly. He says, I don't want anyone to take your crown. What's that? What's that about, Josiah? Well, it seems possibly to refer to 2 Timothy 4.8, that Jesus said, finally, or Paul said, finally there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but to all those who loved Jesus's appearing. So this crown, he's like, hey, I'm coming quickly. Let no one take your crown. It might be reference to make sure you just keep looking for Jesus' return, loving Jesus' return, there's a crown of righteousness for all of those who love his appearing. And just that idea of like, do we love his appearing or do we fear it? Don't let anyone take your crown. There is a crown of righteousness for all those who love his appearing, 2 Timothy 4, 8. And he closes with this. Just a lot of promises. Like he does in every single church. He's like, if you overcome, here's what's going to happen. And I want you just to like, soak this in. Take this in. Listen to the promises of Jesus. It's in verse 12. Jesus now says, he who overcomes, listen, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from heaven, from my God, <laughs> and I will write on him my new name. Let's just break down these promises. He goes, I'm going to make you a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. Now, keep this in mind that Philadelphia and some of these cities in Turkey had that fear of an earthquake. Like, again, we're, our modern buildings are built in such a way where we can, like, withstand most earthquakes. Even in California, they built them now up to code where, like, they can withstand some pretty big earthquakes. It, for them, an earthquake happened, it's like, it, you have to start all over. It just wipe them out. Like, this even happened in America and Chicago and San Francisco or whatever. It's just like, whenever earthquakes happen, there was like, it just wipes them out completely. Here's what he's saying. I'm going to make you immovable. You're going to be a pillar in the temple of my God. You're not going to be moved. Once you're in, you're not going to go out. I love the security of that. Jesus is saying, here's the promise. You're not going to go anywhere. When you're with me, you're with me. He's not literally saying you're going to be like a temple, like frozen there. But you're going to be like in the presence of my God. 
You're going to be, you're going to have your roots so deeply laid down in the foundation. You're not, you're not going anywhere. You're not going to go out anymore. What a promise from Jesus saying, don't you want to be a pillar in, in God's presence that you'll just like be with him? There's no, what, what could happen once I'm in heaven? Like you're, you're there, man. You're with Jesus. You're not going anywhere. And then he says these three different names. He goes, I'm going to give you the name of God, the name of Jerusalem, and the name, the, my new name, Jesus' new name. Now, there's so many ideas behind this. I, first of all, I love this thought. The name of God. Like, I don't know if there's like tattooed on us, like with the name of God on us, the name of the new Jerusalem, the name of Jesus. He's like, but I'm going to put on you my name. Obviously, this is like that toy story kind of idea where Andy writes the name on the bottom of the foot. Like, this is my toy. This is God's way of doing that. He's like, you're mine. My name New Jerusalem, your, your place. Jesus' new name, what is that? We'll find out. I love this, though. We have, the, we have God's name, like, written on us. And this was an idea even for them then, communicating, you are mine. You're mine. I'm Andy, you're Buzz, or Woody, whatever. But you're mine. I'm putting my name on you, my home on you, Jesus' new name. Look how Jesus just even talks so intimately about God. My God, my God, the way Jesus talks about God the Father just so intimate, so personal. I just want you, church, to take this on that you have a new name. A new name, again, as we've talked about, means a new identity, a new way of living. God would give people new names, and it was saying, hey, you're not, you're not Jacob, you're Israel, meaning um, you're now not a heel catcher, you're not a deceiver, you're now a child of God, Israel. My point is, new names always communicate a new identity. New names always communicate like a new way of living, and Jesus says, you have my name on you. You have, you have the new Jerusalem on you. Listen, I just want to slow down today, and before we just even close out, I just want to take this in a little bit. I want us to look back and reflect and say, Jesus, thank you for this church of Philadelphia. Thank you that they kept your word. They persevered. They did not deny your name. Thank you that they loved you by keeping your word. Jesus, you love them. Jesus, you have great promises in store for them. Keep us from the hour of trial. Jesus, come quickly. Like, I'm, I'm hoping that this does something within our hearts. We read this and go, yes, Lord. Just like John. The end of Revelation, even so, Lord, come quickly. Like, I want God to do something in our hearts to go, I just want to be with the one who I love. On this Valentine's Day, we're reminded of love in so many ways. We are truly reminded of Jesus' great love that he has for the church, that Jesus loves the church deeply and intimately. And listen, when you walked in here today, you received that little cup, that little wafer thing on top, and we call this communion. And I want you just to pull this out for just a second. And as you pull this out, don't get distracted even if you just look at it, I know it's a little different, a little wafer thing on the top, not the best tasting. But here, here's the thing. This is for us to reflect on the love of God. Where God says, I so loved you, I gave you my only son. I so loved you, I gave. Do you know that when you love someone, you give? God's like, I so love the world, I gave. If you love someone, you will give. Where there's love, there's giving. Where there's love, there's generosity. And we look down and say, God, thank you so much for giving your son, for shedding your blood, for giving up your body. And we're going to take communion as just a way for us to remember who Jesus is and what he's done. For us to say, Jesus, your love for me surpasses my love for you. You love me. I love you because you first loved me. Why do we love God? Because he first loved us. And listen, I would love for us to slow down and just take this to heart and say, Jesus, thank you for this love. Thank you for this reminder of the sacrifice of your body, of your blood. Listen, there is no need. If you do not believe in Jesus, if you do not receive Jesus, no need to take this, no need to eat this, no need to pretend. But if you, this Jesus is your Lord, your Savior, take, eat, take, drink. 
Let it remind you of God's great love for you. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to pray briefly. We're going to have the worship team come back up here while I'm praying, and then you guys just take communion. Take communion right there where you're seated when you're ready, and just spend some time reflecting on God's love. Spend some time just confessing your love for God. Let this be like a Philadelphia moment, that brotherly love, that love that you have for God and for another, and say, God, uh, remind me of your great love today. So can we just pray and just invite the Lord here? Uh, in this way. Father, we thank you for the reminder of communion. We thank you for the reminder, God, of, of the sacraments, of, God, your body that you gave up so we could live. God, we thank you for your blood that was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. Jesus, as everyone, as we hold this cup, as we look at this juice, we just think of Jesus, how your blood, your blood covers a multitude of sins. That Jesus, though our sins were like scarlet, you've made them whiter than snow. Father, I just ask that as people just are here, as we listen, as we worship, as we take in, that God, you remind them of your great love. That Jesus, um, this would be something that we would no longer fight. We would no longer have the mindset that God could never love me. God, you love this church and everyone in this place personally and individually and collectively. And Jesus, we ask that you remind us of that today. We thank you for the greatest sign of love that you gave your body up for us, that you sacrificed your love for us. So Jesus, we just ask that you'd speak and you'd move in your precious name.